Hello and thank you for listening to 60MW. I'm Dave. And I'm Tom. And this is part two of our looking back at 80s music videos, the remastered show, which of course is uh, bringing back to life the shows that me and Tom did back in the days of 80s Picture House. Hopefully you've listened to part one, where me and Tom had a chat with Stephen Pilato, the music video historian, and you enjoyed that, and you're ready for part two. And in this one, we are joined by Keith Williams, a visual conceptualist. And this, if you... Um, if you've got any any sort of uh, knowledge of F eighties music videos after listening to that show with Stephen Pilato, Keith Keith adds to that with some amazing stories. Uh, he's he's the guy he created the first music video image ever shown on MTV. It was for the Buggles video "Killed the Radio Star." He's worked with I mean you name it with eighties music acts. He's worked with them. You're going to hear great stories about him and how he pitched concepts to Michael Jackson for Billie Jean and beat it. All while Keith does an impression of Michael Jackson as he's telling the stories. <laughs> uh, there's stuff to do. I'll tease it. There's stuff to do with Rambo First Blood Part Two. Uh, you'll find out Elton John's pet name for Keith. This stuff about with Ghostbusters video, horror movies with Alice Cooper, why Bonnie Tyler's holding out for a hero is shot at the Grand Canyon, and so much more. Uh, all said with a big dollop of humour. Uh, I'm sure you're going to laugh a lot and go, oh my God, I never knew that. While you listen to me and Tom have a chat with Keith. Um, rounding off this week, because as you would know by now... Um, the show with Stephen Palato was released on Monday. This one we're releasing on Thursday. So you've had a week of looking back at 80s music videos. So sit back and enjoy. Because, uh, Tom, this was this was fun, mate, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah, really, really good. Really good behind-the-scenes stories here. So. Yeah. And as in the one with Stephen Palato, again, seven years ago, we had different recording equipment. Um, we, do sound, we do sound a little bit different to what we do now, not just for the fact that we're seven years older as well, which does make a difference. Uh, <laughs> so sit back, relax, and enjoy part two of me and Tom and Keith Williams looking back at 80s music videos. Hello and welcome to episode 84 of the 80s Picture House and part two of our looking back at music videos. I'm Dave and as always I'm joined by my fellow co-host Tom. Hello. And if you listen to part one, you'll know already that we're delighted to be joined by Keith Williams. Hello, Keith. Hello. Right, I think we should dive straight into this, into the, you know, right from the beginning. Give us a little bit of uh, history about your background and how you got involved in the music videos and also in the film industry as well, I believe. Oh, okay. Well, basically, um, I escaped from home in Wales in 68 I uh, didn't know what I wanted to do until somebody said, why don't you go to film school because you're mad on films? So I thought, oh, I never thought of that. I never thought it was possible, you know, to get into the film industry just because I liked films. So I applied to the London Film School in Covent Garden. And in 1972, I started a two-year course there, uh, which um, when I left, the best advice given was... Um, don't tell anybody you've been to film school because <laughs> uh, the industry was very sort of, um, they didn't like the idea that there, there was a possibly easy route into the industry via film schools. So um, luckily uh, 
from film school, I'd learned that the things I enjoyed most were writing, directing, and editing. So um, I hooked up with an Australian producer who was over from Sydney. Uh, he was um, touring Greece and all the other ancient places, filming pillars that he could uh, make documentary films of. And I was um, put in touch with him and ended up editing a few of the documentaries and then going on a world cruise with him uh, because that's what he managed to finagle was a free passage for four around the world, giving P&O um, a free uh, showreel at the end that they could use. Unfortunately, P&O didn't like it because the truth of world cruises is that it's not just 20-year-old blonde girls in bikinis around the pool, but 80-year-olds with half-drunk Pepsi. <laughs> so they weren't too keen on truth in advertising there. But while I was on the cruise, um, I wrote my... Well, before leaving on the cruise, I'd written my first film treatment um, and so thought it'd be cute that as we're going to Hollywood, why not send the treatment from Hollywood to London rather than the other way around? And when I got back, the producer, David Putnam, uh, who made Charity of Fire, Bugsy Malone, and other key British films of the 80s and maybe the 90s. Um, he loved the treatment, bought it off me, commissioned Bruce Robinson, who did with Null and I, to write the screenplay. And that was my first attempt at trying to write and sell a, a film project. This was about 75 um, so I continued writing in London, coming up with ideas, pitching them, selling them as treatments or screenplays to people like Putnam, Don Boyd and others uh, until around 78. Um, I was walking across Grosvenor Square with um, a female friend and she said, you know, I've got to introduce you to this company. Uh, they've got lots of money to make films. They would love your scripts. Uh, that company was um, John Roseman's company in London. He was, well, became king of the music, the first king of the music videos in England uh, in the late 70s. So I was taken along to his office. There was no one there, but she showed me my first pop promos, as they were known in those days. And the first one I saw, I think, was Elvis Costello dancing in front of a giant radio. Uh, the other she showed was sort of similar. They were all low-budget filmed in two-walled sets, um, bad camera work, uh, and largely performance because they were so low budget. But um, through watching them, I was introduced to Russell Mulcahy, who was the guy she wanted me to meet. We struck it off immediately because we shared the same kind of gonzo ideas. And basically, um, and he liked my ideas for films as well. But it wasn't until, like... 81, we were living together in Ladbroke Grove. Uh, he came home with a record called Video Killed the Radio Star, said, can you take a listen to that, see if you've got any ideas? And the first thing I thought of when I heard the track was, um, well, I could see a little girl playing with a radio on a beach. Um, he was thrilled with that because he gave him a starting idea so that everything else from that point in the video was purely his. I had nothing to do with but that was the opening image of the video and subsequently the opening image of MTV when it started in America. So that was my intro into pop promos, music videos. So between 78 
and 82. I worked with him in London, uh, coming up with ideas, concepts, images, whatever, for Elton John, Spandau Ballet, Electric Light Orchestra, um, 10CC. And then when he went off to Australia uh, to make that film about the killer pig called Razorback, and he was closing up the house where we lived, um, I thought perhaps the time has come to seek fame and fortune and set sail for America. So I went to Hollywood around 82, uh, which coincided with him being out there for a few videos while waiting for Razorback to take off. So um, I did uh, It's Raining Again for Supertramp for him and Voyeur for Kim Carnes. And then in early 83, an American producer got wind of what I was doing because no one else was doing what I was doing. Uh, most of the directors came up with their own concepts or the artist came up with a concept, but there was no such thing as a kind of freelance concept writer, which meant the record companies or the directors sending me a track, which I then was asked to try and visualize. Because uh, most of the directors came from technical backgrounds. They were cameramen, they were editors or whatever, and they had no real experience of creative concepts. They could film a performance. Anybody can film the drummer and the guitar and the singer. But if they wanted something in a dramatic setting or a dramatic theme, they were a little lost. So that was where I was able to step in because of my experience in coming up with concepts and structures for dramatic movies. Mm -hmm. um, so in 83, uh, this guy called Jeff Abelson was probably the best producer I ever worked with because he put the concept first and then found the director, um, which pleased me no end as a writer, was um, he asked if I would come up with a couple of tracks, uh, a couple of concepts for uh, Michael Jackson. And literally, I said, who's he? Oh, he's one of, <laughs> one of the Jackson Five. Oh, uh, well, you know, I listen to disco. I don't listen really to Motown. But he gave me two tracks from the album Thriller, which had yet to be released. And they were Billy Jean and Beat It. And um, I came up with concepts for 3D at the same time, because that's what he, the producer wanted to do primarily. And pitched them to Michael's manager. He liked them asked if I'd pitch them to Michael. So being Welsh and, you know, we, we never get shy. Um, off we went to Michael Jackson's house to pitch him the concepts for Beat It and Billie Jean, which subsequently weren't used. But it was just a thrill, you know, to um, go to his house and meet him and have the experience like that. And what was it like going to his house? What was the story of, of visiting oh, Michael well, Jackson? It wasn't, it wasn't Neverland. It was in Encino. And he was behind big gates and he walked in and he immediately had to put sunglasses on because the wallpaper was so brash. <laughs> it was like black and gold and red. And so um, I sat there opposite the producers who I couldn't see because the flowers and the coffee table in the middle were so big. And um, this figure glided in like Diana Ross on roller skates. <laughs> and literally, and I, I, I suppose I have to do the voice because... The voice was the voice. You know, hi, how are you? He really sounded like Mickey Mouse. <laughs> and um, he said, hi, uh, can I get you a drink? Uh, what you got? Fruit juice. Uh, what kind of fruit juice? 
Oh, orange, pomegranate, celery. Oh, orange will be fine. Thank you. <laughs> so he vanished. His manager arrived, came back. I pitched him the two concepts. And he sort of paused, stroked his chin and said, hmm, I want to do something that will knock Steven Spielberg's eyes out. And my first thought was not on the budget I've been quoted because it was like something like $35,000. At this time, $30,000 was the average for a one-day performance shoot. Whoa. When I did uh, She Works Hard for the Money for Donna Summer, that was a $75,000 budget, which meant that you could do a two-day shoot, and maybe even one of them be a studio set. So um, I knew we were out of the ballpark, as, you know, as soon as he said his grandiose ideas. So a couple of weeks later, I heard that um, Steve Barron was making Billy Jean, down on uh, our Hollywood stage. So I thought, well, I'm no snob. I'll go down and see what concept was approved. And uh, walking into the studio, you saw the, um, you know, the paving stone road with the painted city backdrop. And there was Michael singing and dancing on the road. So anyway, I sort of mingled with some friends in the crew. And one of them said, Keith, Keith, well, Michael's trying to say hello to you. Whoa, Jesus. Uh, because he was black and standing against a light, he was completely invisible, like, <laughs> two feet away from me. And he looked at me and said, hi, how are you? Uh, fine. Where did I see you last? Uh, up at your house two weeks ago. Oh, yeah, right. So he went off, did some singing and dancing, came back, said, didn't you love E.T.? Well, actually, I preferred the world called the Garp. Oh, no, E.T. was wonderful. And making the audio album with Spielberg was a revelatory experience. And, you know... It was amazing. So anyway, he went and did another take. And when they shouted cut, he stopped and looked over at me. And I was like about 12 feet away from me. And he sort of crooked his finger that I should join in. So I thought, well, and I, 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 I shouldn't have thought this, but I did. I thought, who's more famous, him or me? Him. <laughs> so I'll walk over to him. And um, he said, you've got ambition, ain't you? Uh, yeah. You want to make movies with kids? Yeah. Wonderful fantasies. Yeah. Can I touch your forehead? Excuse me? <laughs> Can I touch your forehead? Yeah, all right. So he went forward, closed his eyes, and touched my forehead. And then only years later did I realize what he'd done. He'd ET'd me. He'd done what E.T. did to Elliot. So that was probably the mothership of all experiences <laughs> in Hollywood that I got ET'd by Michael Jackson. <laughs> <laughs> There's not too many people can say that, I'm sure. No. <laughs> I know there's a weird uh, sequel to that. Uh, cut to 30 years later, like a couple of years ago, and this uh, Michael Jackson obsessive was stalking me on Facebook because I'd written up that article about meeting Michael Jackson and it being published on a website. She'd read it and wanted to know what stage and studio Michael shot Billie Jean in because her and her friends wanted to retrace his steps. So I thought, oh, right. So I found out from the production designer now living in Australia and got back to her and let her know she was thrilled to death. She went out to the studio. And as a reward, she sent me a link to a photograph that I knew nothing of for 30 years. And it was a photograph showing me on the road with Michael Jackson 
seconds before ET'd me. <laughs> so if anybody thinks I'm completely deluded and telling lies, I finally got proof. Oh, that's fantastic. You know, <laughs> I suppose uh, you, the rule is never tell a stalker to bugger off because you never know what they might come up with. <laughs> <laughs> so um, anyway, that was, um, I'd done a couple of videos for British direct, Australian directors rather, and now um, suddenly the Americans, because MTV was starting to catch the attention of the mainstream, and um, the producer who had put me forward for the Michael Jackson videos said that, um, had I heard of somebody called Billy Idol? I said, well, yes, of course. He said, well, uh, they're trying to launch him in America, and uh, they can't decide which track. So if I sent you a sort of cassette of about three tracks, I think, see which one catches your imagination. So I think they were white wedding, moany, moany, and dancing with myself. But white wedding had already been done back in England. Um, so I said, well, you know, dancing with myself is the one that seems, seems to lend itself the most to drama and visuals particularly when you find out that Dancing With Myself is actually a metaphor for masturbation. <laughs> Did you know that? In all honesty, I've never really thought about it that way until you just mentioned it then. Think That's... of that title and it makes sense. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> so, um, I came up with uh, an idea of setting it in a kind of post-Blade Runner apocalyptic Los Angeles with um, Billy Idol singing on top of the building while mutants in the streets are trying to climb up the skyscraper to get him. <laughs> um, and since uh, it was meant to be in 3D, but it never was shot that way, I um, thought it'd be a cute idea to have a big neon sign on the roof behind him, which was a Coca-Cola sign. But as he sang, uh, the, uh, some of the letters would blow up and sputter out until you're left with the last two LA, which is where the video was set. Um, and then, of all things, managed to get Toby Hooper of Texas Chainsaw Massacre to direct it, uh, so that it was the first instance of uh, American film director making a music video. Mm -hmm. Before you'd had you had had Mike Hodges direct a Queen video, but that he was British, so that didn't count. This was, you know, a real American film director. And um, so we made Dancing With Myself. And then for that producer, I went on to do Ghostbusters for Ray Parker Jr., uh, Phil Collins, Against All Odds, and Bonnie Tyler, Hold It Out for a Hero. While at the same time then, um, working for the other British directors that came out there, who I knew of, back from England, and a few American directors. The money wasn't great. In fact, it was pitiful because no one else was doing what I was doing. So what were the guidelines for what I should be paid? Mm -hmm. Because often they'd get really fed up if I charged the full fee, which wasn't much, for um, a one-page outline as opposed to a one-line paragraph. And you say, well, you know, as much work goes into the one-line paragraph, it's, got, it's easier to write a page of an outlaw of a dramatic narrative or something. But if the song lends itself to a performance in a thematic setting, realistically, it can just be told in one line. Mm -hmm. But they really, it's like they weighed the treatments 
And um, if it was heavy enough, then you got paid. They didn't like slight concepts. So anyway, that's what I did between um, 80, well, realistically 82 and 87. While at the same time, um, I had an agent out there. So I was being sent to studios to pitch feature projects of my own, which always turned out to be a bit too grandiose for the people that they were pitched to. But out of that, I managed to sell a sort of music video style musical to Universal called Heart of the City, which Catherine Bigelow was being edged to do as her first major studio film because she'd done The Loveless at that point, but nothing came of that. I was put together with five jugglers at Disney, the Flying Karamazov brothers, because somebody thought it'd be interesting to see what would happen if you put a music video writer together with five hippie jugglers. <laughs> and in all honesty, it was an extraordinary experience because I had to follow them virtually around America because they were on tour. And um, we agreed to do a half-hour film, but knowing that they, even though they were hippie jugglers, the, the egos were quite um, you know, strong individually, and I knew it would be a nightmare to get all five of them to agree on one story. So I suggested, why don't each of them do their own little segment? And I'd come up with the Lincoln structure to put them together. And that's what we did. But by the time that it was presented back to Disney, the person who'd commissioned it had left. And generally, that's when you get the revolving door on projects that have been assigned by people who are no longer there. So while I was basically working on music videos i was also doing these feature projects and also the opportunity arose through the american film institute who i sort of i would agree to be a judge on music video contests and things um they asked if i could come up with a concept for a short film that they wanted to shoot in high definition because up until that point high definition was basically just ducks flying over Mount Fujiyama. Nobody had <laughs> done anything dramatic. And um, so I came, and it had to do with Haley's Comet because they might be able to get financing from Comet Cleanser. So whatever I came up with, could I have a can of Comet on the kitchen window set? And um, I came up with a seven-minute story and then saw it as an opportunity to direct because uh, that's what I really wanted to do. And um, they agreed, uh, particularly when I said I'd do it for nothing and all they had to do was charge me for the script. So I ended up directing Matic Short for the American Film Institute and the cast I chose was Robert Downey Jr., Elaine Ryan, who was Madonna's mother-in-law at that time, and this little kid who went to star in RoboCop 2. Um, and I thoroughly enjoyed the experience. Uh, but unfortunately, um, I think Procter and Gamble, who you know made Haley uh, made Comet Cleanser, um, they were looking for something that they could put on with a feature film in the cinema, and they would give coupons away if you bought Comet Cleanser, where you'd be able to see a film for free by going to the short. But um, it was meant to be shown at the Cinerama Dome. But when they saw the short film and realised honesty in advertising, me, had come up with a comet that was exactly like what a comet is, 
not like um, a big spaceship out of Close Encounters, but it's a blur in the sky. And that was sort of anticlimactic for them. So they scrapped plans to um, release it in the cinemas. But at least I had the experience of um, doing that project, which was great. Oh, yeah. And Robert Downey Jr., you know. Yeah, I have the photograph of him and me. I have it on my toilet shelf, and I stare at it, and I still can't <laughs> believe I directed Future Iron Man. <laughs> yeah, oh, God, of course, yeah. Because <laughs> at the time, he'd done uh, things like, um, what was that John Hughes film uh, where they created a weird science? Yes. He'd done little bits in films like that, and... Um, when I went to see him to see if he'd be good for the cast, instantly knew there was an edge about him that set him apart from everyone else. Everyone else would be like crawling. Oh, I love the script. He was fabulous. You must choose me. But he took the attitude of, well, you know, if he didn't get it, he didn't care whether he got it or not. <laughs> so I gave him the part and he was great in it. I think and he was living with Sarah Jessica Parker at the time. He was, he was a little wilder back then than he is now, I tell oh, you. Yes, <laughs> wild was the word. <laughs> uh, but no, he was completely professional on the set. And um, I thoroughly enjoyed the experience of directing and knew then that I had no great degree of enthusiasm to continue doing concepts for directors who usually mangled them. And I was lucky if they resembled about 30% of what I'd written or pitched. Mm-hmm. Because that was generally the case. Um, I'd be lucky if what they filmed resembled what I wrote. Uh, and usually not, and every writer will tell you this, uh, never as good as what was intended. Uh, but um, directing my own concept, I, you know, the control aspect, uh, I just uh, loved. So, uh, and around this time, this was like 85, 86, um, I could tell my days in music videos in America were coming to an end because in the early days in London, you could go to a laundrette in Shepherd's Bush, stick a band like the members in there, shoot for a couple of hours, and you got a video. And the um, the record companies at that time were still not quite sure what these things were and uh, never interfered and were only too glad to have something, particularly when, the, like, the early... Virgin Band videos cost about 3,000 quid. Um, So, you know, I could tell now in America that my conceptual days were coming to an end because I would come up with something that was performance, narrative, situational, location. I always tried to, you know, not tack a spare concept onto a song, but the best video comes from the song giving you the idea. And preferably, or possibly, uh, most definitely, the first time you hear the track. You could listen to a track 46 times and still not have a clue what to do with it. But if the song was good, it gave you a hook halfway through listening to it. Mm-hmm. And um, they made the best. I was lucky because I was working with the best directors who had the best budgets and therefore the best songs. And that fitted my rather extravagant imagination very well. <laughs> so anyway, it's... um. It grown to a halt with uh, around 86, you now started seeing the record executives standing on the edge of the set. And on one Kenny Loggins video, uh, they'd say to the director, um, we don't think he should really be having a beard. Why not? 
well, because he hasn't got one on the album cover. So you could tell <laughs> that fingers were starting to probe and, um, you know, exercise what they thought were their rights. And seeing that it was basically becoming the domain of editors, choreographers and art directors, um, you know, my days were numbered out there. Mm-hmm. So I left America penniless about 87, basically having had five years of the best time of my life. Oh, I should imagine they were as well. Sounds, oh, like, sounds, like, sounds like a great time. Well, I, ne- I was never doing it for the money. I was doing it for the experience. As long as I had money to support myself, that was okay. So if somebody rang up and said, what are you doing tomorrow afternoon? I don't know. What am I doing? Oh, can you come for tea with Barbara Streisand? Well, you know, what are you going to do? Say, well, how much are you going to pay me? No, you want to meet Barbara <laughs> Streisand. And there you are in a limo going down to Malibu to her five-house estate set off the beach and having a cup of tea with her. Uh, so it's you... full of, you know, meeting people like that. I mean, there was as much excitement and interest in the videos that didn't get made, uh, let alone the ones I did. But in a period of about four or five years, I'd say I got about 50 made that I was involved with in some capacity, whether fully or just providing, you know, ideas or concepts. Mm-hmm. Also, interestingly enough, apart from being commissioned to come up with original concepts for the songs, um, people like Warner Brothers, who had a video department, they would ring up and say, oh, we got this track by Madonna called Borderline. Um, we're not quite happy with the concept that the director has come up with. If we sent you the record and, you know, stuff on Madonna, who wasn't like a mainstream hit then, she was still like a dance chart queen. Um, would you be interested in taking a look at the script, maybe working on it or coming up with your own? So, um, yeah, as long as you've got a free record out of it. Um, so I listened to Borderline and uh, thought, oh, that's a nice track. I came up with a different variation of the script that they had uh, come up with. Warner Brothers are happy, rang up um, her manager, who happened to be the same manager that Michael Jackson had had, uh, that I'd pitched the concepts of Billie Jean and Beat It to. But Michael Jackson rather ungratefully had dumped him as Thriller came out. So um, that was a bit mean, I thought. They'd spent all those years building him up, and then he casts loose when he has his greatest breakthrough success. Uh-huh. So I said about Madonna, I thought, you know, it's a really nice track and I think she could be, you know, very successful. Oh, no, we have plans for her. We're going to make her a phenomenon. And they did. Yeah, they certainly did. So it shows you the power of management as much as the power of talent. Unfortunately, the director didn't like the fact that I'd meddled around with her script. <laughs> and uh, so... Um, I sort of backpedaled out of that one because I couldn't see the point on working with the director when she was trying to drag it back to the concept that I tried to get away from. Mm. You know, it was... But I had to call up Madonna in New York, which was a bizarre experience, being, you know, a boy from a small town in Wales. And, um, you know, I I still remember the conversation of ringing up and a voice saying, yeah, uh, can I speak to Madonna, please? Which sounds so nasty. 
Uh, but it was polite. And yeah. what about? Oh, um, you know, um, I've got to re read this um, outline for borderline. Oh, yeah, right. So you hear boom, 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 steps going away. Boom, 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 steps coming back. Hi, Madonna here. Oh, well, you sound like Michael Jackson. So I read out the concept to her, and she's going, yeah, uh huh, uh huh, uh huh, yeah, right, uh huh. Oh, I love that. So um, when I saw the finished video, which I had not been part of, uh, it came as a little surprise to see that the one thing she'd gone aha at was the only thing that I'd come up with in the video, which was Madonna spraying graffiti on a Rolls Royce. Oh. So that was the bit she really liked. Very nice. Hmm. So that was my phone. What's bizarre, even, is I have an address book at my attic uh, from the 80s. And if you look under M, you'll find Madonna and a number in New York. <laughs> God, that's a hell of an address book. Oh, I know. It be, you know I don't know if the number's still valid. I might try one day. But um, <laughs> it'd be funny if it was, wouldn't it? You got it would be. On the other line. <laughs> Remember me from 30 years ago? <laughs> Yeah, hey, you're the Welsh one. Uh, but then there was Body Tyler. Uh, that was the most fun I had on a video, holding out for a hero, because uh, the budget wasn't great. It was either 35000 or 50000 Um, And it's such a fast track, you know, that typical Wagnerian Jim Steinman sound. You think, God, what can you do to this? I mean, it's so fast. Anything you're going to do is slow. And I was lying in bed thinking about it. I thought, well, actually, it's the ultimate rock video if you set it at the Grand Canyon. You know, rock, Grand Canyon. Mm -hmm. um, so um, I came up with a concept that involved cowboys with neon whips, choirs, um, Bonnie Tyler on the edge of the Grand Canyon, had to reenact it at the offices of CBS, who'd stare at me like I'd gone insane. And um, they, I think, through curiosity more than anything, they approved it. And off we went to the Grand Canyon with Bonnie Tyler. What was funny was the first time I met her, I had to go down to the set. I think it was of Solid Gold where she was performing. And all I heard coming around the corner was, so where's this Welsh boy? I've heard all about them. <laughs> oh, that's me. Uh, so off we went to the Grand Canyon her and her husband, and you're standing on the edge of the Grand Canyon, and her husband's standing next to you, and he said, oh, you're you from uh, Neath in South Wales. Uh, yeah. Oh, we've got a nightclub in Swansea, the Valbard, you have to come. It's really weird when you hear something like that on the edge of the Grand Canyon. It sort of <laughs> shrinks everything around you. And, of course, she got a bit upset because every time somebody wandered near the edge, she'd rush up, grabbing them, saying, oh, don't, my nerves, my nerves. And uh, we nearly blew her off the edge because we didn't realise the helicopter with the camera going overhead created um, a draft which nearly sucked her off. Into the oh, no. Mm. <laughs> she was plucky. She was his again. <laughs> Even she survived. Were, yeah, we had a few of the crew hiding in a nearby bush, ready to grab her if she went over. <laughs> so that's a sort of smattering of um, the stuff I did out there. Oh, and Olivia Newton-John as well, of course. 
Oh, go on. T- tell us more about Olivia Newton-John. Well, she'd done this film called Two of a Kind with John Travolta, mm-hmm. which was pretty awful, which everybody agrees. And it was supposed to be their um, comeback film together after Greece. And there were about three or four songs in it that needed videos. And um, one of the things I'd been uh, doing was music videos for films where you'd have, say, like Against All Odds, you'd have the um, theme song by Phil Collins, and you'd have to come up with a way of integrating performance with film footage. Now, most directors are really lazy and just stuck a band in front of a cinema screen and filmed them performing in front of that and the screen showing footage from the film. But uh, I thought that was crappy and thought you have to get a concept that's what the song is about as well as what the film is about. And when I asked the producer, well, what's it about? Because that was the first instance, an only instance, I came up with a concept without ever hearing the track because the track hadn't been finished. He said, well, you know, it's, it's the same as the film. It's a love triangle between three people. And immediately into mind came a neon triangle, which had three colors, red, blue, and green. And each color related to a different character in the film. So that Jeff Bridges being the hero was blue. Um, Jeff, uh, what's his name? The other actor in it. Uh, He was green being the jealous guy. And Rachel Ward was red, uh, James Wood. And Rachel Ward was red as a protagonist. So when I pitched to Taylor Hackford, uh, who hadn't done a music video before, I said, well, basically, you've got Phil Collins standing against a wall of water singing the song, and the wall of water changes uh, from one colour to the next. But say it's blue, you go over his shoulder into the blue and then into footage of Jeff Bridges. If it changes to Rachel Ward, you then come out of a red wall of water behind um, Phil Collins. So it's a colour-coded video for when to put what footage with what bit of the performance. And he just looked at me and went, all right. <laughs> and I was, I'm so used to, oh, we love it, but. And I was out that studio like lightning before we could say but um, to make sure that that's what he filmed. And he did. Mind you, I did stand over the editor's shoulder with a gun, threatening to shoot him <laughs> if he betrayed that code. How much say did you get in the editing of a lot of the, the videos that you worked on? Oh, nothing, generally. Um, only because Doug Dowdle had directed Holding Out for a Hero and he was like one of the best video editors there were. So I knew where he lived. So I could go down there and say, oh, I'd love to see how it's going along, mainly to check out if um, he was sticking to the concept. Mm. And he was. So uh, that that went okay. But in most cases, um, no, they might ask you your advice when it's done. Like, did you like it? Or is any of you but um no my days were done as soon as i presented the concept and um wasn't even really invited to the set but i went down there um oh another thing that was interesting was doing the first video musical for a band called apollonia six do you remember them i've got to admit the name's not familiar to me now. their only hit know. was sex shooter no i don't know that one they were one of Prince's all-girl bands because he had like a harem. Of course, I shouldn't. We have mentioned them in the past, haven't we, Tom, when we talked about Prince? Yeah, yeah, we did, yeah. We did. 
Yeah, so it's like Shida B. Devotion was one. Apollonia Six was another. So I think they've been nagging at him, saying, you know, you don't give us any videos. Uh, so he paid for um, a video musical, which incorporated three tracks. But again, the company Limelight in America, uh, which were involved, um, they'd had a script done by Brian Thompson, who was the production designer of the original Rocky Horror, Jesus Christ Superstar stage musicals, and many others. Still, to, he, last one he did was Priscilla, Queen of the Desert stage musical, I think. And um, he was lined up for directing it, but they weren't happy with the script. So I was brought in and asked if I could rework the script. So I did. And um, that was filmed over a week in Hollywood. Prince even came down to the set. This was about 85. Uh, and it had the most eclectic cast ever. It had, uh, well, uh, Apollonia Six, Buck Henry, Edie Williams, and uh, Ricky Nelson in his last role, I think. Oh, wow. But it never got seen because um, <laughs> it didn't quite cut together when it was, you know, it didn't quite work out as it looked great, hmm. but it didn't quite work out to everybody's standards of satisfaction. <laughs> but the same thing had happened in England before I'd gone to America. I'd um, uh, been involved in the first video album for Elton John for an album called The Fox, which was about 1981. Actually, we were involved with the previous album, 2133, but that fell through for lack of financing. But this time the financing was in place. So even though people will say Olivia Newton-John's physical is the first video album, it wasn't strictly speaking because it was a collection of performance videos. Whereas for The Fox, um, I, I came up with a Lincoln structural device, which was a story in its own right, to uh, encompass the individual videos. So it did tell a specific conceptual story by the end. Yeah. And that never got seen because the album bombed. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> I seem to be involved in a lot of things that have never been done before and never seen again. <laughs> <laughs> do, you, uh, do you remember the soap opera in America called General Hospital? Yes, yeah. yeah. Got a call from them. The characters in the soap opera had formed a band and wanted to do a video within the story. So they came to me and the company Limelight asking if we could come up with a way for them to do a music video within the context of the story. So it did. But when we went down to the set, because I was determined to get a general hospital jacket with my name on it, which I did, um, it was hilarious seeing how they would visualised what the video director looked like. <laughs> it literally was a man in a tweed coat with leather pads on his elbows carrying a thick script. <laughs> so I don't think they quite got it. <laughs> so there was lots of little odd incidents like that amongst the, the mainstream videos that I was doing. Uh, but no, 87 loomed. I was skint. Nowhere to go. Um... You know, even if people say, well, why don't you go back to London? Now, I, you know, I, I've got no money, literally. I, they, I would I ever, I've got nothing to live on in London. So it was back to, like, go on the Monopoly board to my parents' house in Wales, 
where I thought maybe the time has come to concentrate now on full-time script writing rather than be constantly distracted by music videos, which I needed to pay the rent. Mm-hmm. So, okay. yeah, I came back to Wales in 87, a little dazed after, you know, five years of fabulousness in Hollywood. But from there, started writing screenplays. And um, this was pre-internet days. So it was quite difficult. You know, you had to uh, write the thing. You had to copy it out. You had to post it to somebody in America. Now it's just, you know, post a copy in an email attachment and it's there. Yeah, of course. But um, so I managed to, when I first came to Hollywood, uh, I sleeping on the floor, uh, as you classically do, um, of a friend's place. And uh, he said, um, you know, you really should try and stay longer because I only meaning to be out there for like about four weeks or so because that's all I had the money for. But within that period, I came up with an idea uh, which uh, my agent sent me to pitch to Burt Lancaster's company and they bought it. And that then gave me the money to stay on in America, get a sort of H1 work permit um, and also be there in place uh, for MTV. If I hadn't come up with that idea and sold that script, then uh, I'd have had to go back to Wales and probably ended up a bank manager and not being particularly popular either these days. (laughs) So I owe a lot of my career to that one idea I thought of in Hollywood because over the last 30 years, it's been optioned six times. Wow. but Lancaster to Disney to Warner Brothers, Joel Silver. He's a director's attached. Um, How long does an option normally last? Is there like a set period that they... Yeah, for? an option period is generally about either 12 months or 18 months. Okay. And then whoever options it has within the contract the option to renew it again for another 18 months if they so desire. All right. So can they, can they pay more that if they want to option it for longer, would they then have to pay a bigger fee? Or is it just no, the a same set? fee? Same fee for the the second year option. You okay. only get the bulk of your money if the film goes into production. Ah, okay. And the chances of that are generally quite remote, uh, because of every script sold. Uh, I don't know what the percentage is now, but right then, back then, seventy percent didn't get made. Oh God, that's a hell of a lot. Yeah. So just because you sold a script doesn't mean it's going to get made. Because it's down to so many factors. Ego, politics, budget, timing, stars, demands, whatever. It's very rarely to do with the quality or lack of it in the script. Yeah. So basically, I owe 30 years of my life to those constant options on that screenplay (laughs) because they were like stepping stones that while they were not paying me a great deal of money, were just enough to keep me writing rather than have to take a full-time job as a driver or something, where then the, the amount of time available for writing would have just died. Yeah. Can I ask, could you tell us any names that have been linked to it in the past? Has it been oh, optioned? Well, the first time it was optioned to Burt Lancaster's company, hmm. and that was being involved with his daughter, Jane, and her partner, Richard Wagner. They went on to do Ruthless People uh, as their first film, but um, they loved the treatment, Bert didn't, so it ended up locked in option land for three years. Then when um, a friend 
who worked at Whit Thomas, who made the Golden Girls at Disney, uh, he'd always loved the project. And so when the option expired, I couldn't get it back unless I paid them what they paid me in the first place, plus interest, which is not generally the case. It was a bad contract. Uh, but so he got his company to pay off the original option. So they owned it for a year or two. Uh, they assigned Norman Reynolds, the production designer on Spielberg's films, like the Indiana Jones films, as director. But then the Writers Guild strike came up and knocked it for six. And then it got lost there. Um, cut to, that was about 87. Cut to 92. And I was out in America visiting Russell, um, where he had just done Ricochet for Silver Pictures. And I found that if you want to sell a script, a project, an idea, it always helps if you can pitch to the very top person who has the ability to say yes. I would imagine that the majority of scripts I've sold would have never got past the initial barrier of readers who are such a bitter bunch that um, they'd rather say no to anything because that only proved that they were a better writer and why weren't their scripts accepted? So uh, it's useless to even think about going through readers. You have to try and pitch, preferably in a social setting, to the president or the producer, whoever. And I met through Russell, the producer, his film Michael Levy. And at that time, he was the president of Silver Pictures. And he wanted to steer Joel Silver away from 80s supermarket blockbusters like Die Hard and make um, more serious movies, more low-budget, medium-budget movies. Like, for instance, you know Cine Cinema Paradiso? Yes, yeah. Well, he wanted to do... Um, an American remake of that, but set it in a Texas town in the 40s. I thought, well, that's not too bad. That's actually, you know, not bad for a remake idea. But anyway, I, I met him this weekend at Russell's. Uh, I told him about Moonray. He said, have you got a copy of the script? Yes, by sheer coincidence, it's on the table in front of you. And he picked it up on the Friday, rang me back on the Monday, uh, saying uh, he'd like to option it. And the following day, I was on the plane back to Wales where I was working as a van driver for a colour uh, developing firm. Oh, wow. dates to get. <laughs> Thank you. Oh, God, I managed to go to Hollywood and in a few weeks sell that script again. And, of course, the drivers where I worked, how can you drive in for a van company in Wales when you've had tea with Barbara Streisand? <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I'd blow so... their money. <laughs> Well, I need the money, don't I? Um, <laughs> survive. Uh, so um, after that, where are we now? Silver Pictures. That was going to be directed by a guy, Chuck Workman, who won an Oscar for those montages of action films or love films that you see at the Oscars in the past. And he was a Three Stooges fanatic as well. Um, and that was one of his dreams, to make a film about that. But the Farrelly brothers, I think, beat him to it. Uh, so he was assigned as director, but unfortunately, um, Michael Levy, um, got to be careful here, so there's no lawsuits, <laughs> uh, lost his job at Silver Pictures because of a lawsuit. And again, the general rule is, um, if a person who gets fired has had developed a number of projects at the studio, when he goes, so do the projects. 
because whoever replaces him can't take the risk of making one of his predecessor's projects in case it's a hit, and therefore why did they fire him? Mm-hmm. And that's a general rule. As soon as I was through a fifth revision of this script, and as soon as I heard that he'd been fired, I knew the project was doomed and there was pointless completing the draft. Yeah. So then, um, so that was 92. It got optioned by some pictures Warner Brothers. I did revisions. And then around that time, I was in Germany working on a sitcom, the first German sitcom, which was about a talking transsexual microwave called Marlena. <laughs> I didn't think of the idea. <laughs> That's, that sounds incredible. Oh, yeah. You know, um, and at that time, the person I was with uh, so thrilled to have me over in Hamburg uh, that he decided to give me a Halloween party and invited his film student friends up from uh, uh, Munich. And one of them was a director called Hans Horn, who went on to make that film Adrift, if you've ever seen it. Ooh. <clears throat> people who jumped off a boat and couldn't get back on because nobody put the ladder down. Tom? Have you seen it, that one? No, it doesn't ring a bell. 2004, I think it was made. Or, yeah. Oh, so anyway, just... I met him. He was a film student, and he was thrilled to death that he was meeting somebody who... um was actually doing revisions for Warner Brothers on a major movie and wanted to hold the script. 16 years later, through the most bizarre path of circumstances imaginable, and it's a book in its own right, I was in the Austrian Alps in his 14th century lodge working on a revision of Moonray for him. (laughs) And then he subsequently got it sold to a German production company, but they couldn't get it made because all the financiers, like Uh everybody else in the past, couldn't figure out who the audience for the film was. It's a kid's fantasy drama where death is involved, and yet whoever read the script loved it, but then when they bought it and tried to figure out what to do with it, they take it apart because it dazzled, put it together again, but it didn't dazzle. So it always came to a dead end. And um, Hans and myself kind of resolved that, but um, German financiers still couldn't get a a grip on it. Then it was optioned to another German company who then renewed their option on it last year. (coughs) So by this June, they will have had it three years. And um, I have no idea what's happening to it, except the option runs out in June. And if they haven't made it by then, then I finally get the rights back. And yeah. then I, what I'd love to do is after this 30-year journey, think of it as coming home so I can novelize it and uh, publish it, if necessary, myself on Kindle. And if the film rights were then sold again, I wouldn't mind what was done with the film because the story was being told in the way it was always intended to be as a book. Yeah, that sounds a good way for it to go. Then, oh, yeah, it's like yeah. if you've got 30 years' worth of scripts, it's pointless thinking of anything new because the world hasn't even seen most of what I've written. <laughs> so um, what I thought was, well, why not? The structures are there, the stories are there, the characters are there, the basic scenes are there. Well, you've done the majority of the work. Why not just turn them into um, a novel format? Yeah. See, you could have more news for us in June, possibly. 
I must be the only person in the world, the only writer in the world who's praying his script doesn't get made. <laughs> <laughs> because I've had rows with the director about this. He said, well, you want to film me, don't you? <clears throat> yeah, but it's not about the money. Mm-hmm. It's about getting the story told in the best way possible. And yeah. I spent months working out the structure, working out the logic, working out the best way the story could be. And instantly you sell it to somebody. Uh, you know, even the tea lady will come along and say, oh, wouldn't it be good if you changed that? <laughs> no. You know, and everybody, it's the as soon as a writer sold a script, they want him to vanish because then they want to poke around with it and put their own stamp on it and generally pull it apart and it then doesn't work. And that's just not my script here. That's uh, the majority of scripts. Mm-hmm. I'm guessing after 30 years, it, the story just mean must mean more and more to you as the years go on, does it? Well, funny enough, it, of all the scripts I've ever written, I never considered it my favourite story, but it turned out to be my most popular story, possibly because I like writing very epic narratives. And this was the first time I sat down and thought, let's see if you can write something that's situational, that's a story set in one place. Because realistically, that's cheaper to make than gallivanting between locations all around the country. And I think that was the appeal, that it was set in one place. And yet, the first 10 minutes, everybody says, it's so magic, you know, I was in tears, and it's the first thing they want to change. (laughs) Oh, no. That must be frustrating, though, surely. you, You get to the point where you can't upset yourself, because... If you sell to a studio, you have to regard it purely as a money exercise. Uh, That script, whether it needs it or not, will be rewritten, and not necessarily with you involved or the way you would have wanted it rewritten. Uh, So I know that if I really care about the story, then I think prose is the direction to safeguard them. But if you sell them to a studio in particular, you you know you'd be lucky if it represents you know thirty percent of it resembles what you originally sold. Yeah. So that's I've come to live with the frustration of that, <laughs> telling myself, well, unless you've got thirty to fifty million dollars to make it yourself, you have to regard them as the customer, and they are entitled to do with it what they want because it's their money. Yeah. And that's the way then of not having a cardiac arrest. Every time your comma's been changed. <laughs> um, there's, a, there's a few things I want to drag you back to the 80s for, Keith, before we finish with this. Because earlier on, to start with, you mentioned uh, Ray Parker Jr. and Ghostbusters. What part did you have in that music video? Um, again, it was the producer of um, Phil Collins, Bonnie Tyler, Billy Idol, that said, you know, there was this film coming out called Ghostbusters and there was a track by Ray Parker Jr. And could I, would I like to come up with a concept for it? Uh, so I did, which was basically a girl making her way to a haunted house. And in the house, it's empty except for uh, the windows and doorways and trap doors all being outlined in black limbo by neon. And they then become the devices for seeing the footage from the film. Mm. So that if she raises a blind, then you go into the window into the film. Um, I had to meet Ivan Reitman and he wanted a few modifications because, you know, I thought 
originally on the chorus of Ghostbusters, you'd cut two, three or four little kids with sheets over their head and eyes cut in the cloth, and they're all standing around an old-fashioned radio, you know, going, Ghostbusters, because it had a very sort of um, 40s heritage to it, the idea of Ghostbusters. If nothing else, the Ghostbreakers film with Bob Hope. And um, he didn't like that. So I said, well, what if, you know, you've got um, some celebrities to sing the chorus? And my main motive of coming up with that idea was that I, so I could beat them. Um, and he thought, oh, yeah, I'll get Dan Aykroyd, he'll do it. But then I was a bit miffed when, um, to do the star's cameos, they didn't go to the, drag them down to the studio. They went around their houses, wherever they were, put a piece of black behind them, and filmed them there and then, singing, who are you going to call? Ghostbusters. Oh. <laughs> so, and at the time, I'd have to be honest, I thought it was the worst video I'd ever been involved with. I thought, oh, God, that's it. My career's over. Uh, I don't know why I thought that at the time, because I look at it now, and it's quite good. But um, I, one lesson I've learned is, Whenever you create something and you think it's crap, it's going to be the most popular thing you've ever done. <laughs> and when you do something that you think is a work of genius, nobody gets it. Because <laughs> that's, that's one of the biggest music videos of the 80s, Ghostbusters. Everybody knows that music video. Oh, yeah. I've got the, still got the little Ghostbusters caps that they, you know, they've always been a fan of the freebie stuff and goodie bags that they give out to promote movies. So on Ghostbusters scored good, you know, with T-shirts, caps, or Ghostbusters on them. A bit cheap like that. <laughs> now, there's one music video from the 80s, Keith, that intrigues me for two specific reasons. Reason one is the guy whose song it is and who's in it, we've had as a guest on an In Conversation With show here. It's Frank Stallone. <laughs> the, the okay. second okay. the second reason is you directed this video uh, yes peace peace in our life please tell us stories about this uh well um my friend mark goldblatt edited the movie i've been with him in film school and we've been friends since 72 and every time I went to America, I visited him. We always hung out and when he got married and everything. So anyway, he turned into one of Hollywood's top five action editors. You know, Terminator, Robocop, uh, Rambo. And so when he was editing Rambo, he said, uh, I was to the producers and they're interested in having a music video done for this. So he showed me the film, which hadn't been released. And, you know, as long as you left a brain at the door, it was great. <laughs> you know? It was a brilliantly made action movie, whatever your politics. Um, <clears throat> pardon me. Uh, but looking at it, I thought, well, what's the title on the track? Oh, Peace in Our Life. Um, and it's got to have footage from the film in it. Yes. Uh, how can you do a video with Frank Stallone singing about peace in our life and his brother's going around shooting everybody dead? <laughs> <laughs> So I said, well, you know, you can have a go. So I didn't usually do scripts for videos. The only one I'd done before was for one for Elton John back in England uh, because it was being shot at Stowe School and the headmaster wanted to know what was being shot. So um, 
I'm sorry, I was distracted there. So, uh, so uh, with Peace in My Life, I actually printed out the lyrics and then broke it down into segments. Like start, you start with war, genuine war footage of soldiers coming home to give it a serious intent. And then you work your way into the footage of the film by choosing shots which didn't actually show Stallone killing anybody, just running around in big explosions. And then with Frank Stallone, I thought what would be very powerful would be to reserve him to the last part of the video, standing in a graveyard, um, singing, you know, like a, a, a soldier. And when I came up with this, I said, and if you like, I'd really like to direct it. Again, I'll do it for nothing, just for the opportunity. So the producer said, all right, then. And so I found myself in that military graveyard in Westwood or Brentwood, um, shooting Frank Stallone, who between shots was determined to do as many impersonations as possible, like George Raft. And uh, I had a great time shooting it. But I think he got a bit miffed when he saw the finished video that he wasn't throughout, that he was only really in the last bit, which I thought would be more powerful and more impact for him. And the last I heard at the time was him disappearing into the edit suite, trying to re-edit more of himself into it. (laughs) But I managed to get a copy of the original video and put it on YouTube. And I think it's had... 70,000, 90,000 hits or something. But then recently came across a site which also said it was showing peace in our life. So I checked it out and it was a completely recut version of the one I'd done. Then I noticed whose channel it was. Guess. (laughs) It wasn't Frank Stallone's by any chance, was it? Possibly. (laughs) So... Cut to a week ago, I have an email from YouTube saying that my video has been taken down because it infringes copyright issues. But wow. then, oh, ah, wait a minute, went off to Sloan's site. It's still, his version is still there. The, 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 the defense rests. <laughs> oh, so, so the director's original version is not on YouTube. Is that right? Then? Ooh, that's right. Wow, that's, it's been that's interesting. I know, I, I was a bit staggered when uh, I thought, that's a bit mean. Um, you know, there's isn't there room enough in the world for two versions? <laughs> um, and I still like the original version I did because I edited it with Mark Goldblatt and it took like three days to edit because the uh, machine kept breaking down, which was really frustrating. And I never want to see that film again for the rest of my life because I've seen so many clips from it while editing it. But um, no, I was was very happy with the result, even though whenever I presented it at um, video seminars, everybody bursts out laughing when I say I directed a video for Rambo. Uh, But then I, I explained to them, you know, the circumstances and the challenge of trying to do something that wasn't stupid. And I still get a laugh, the fact that it was a Welsh boy who went to Hollywood and ended up directing a video for Rambo. Exactly, yeah. You've got to grasp those little moments. <laughs> I've, I've got one more question for you from the 80s, Keith. 
and I'm, I'm going to ask this because in the last regular show that we did, I picked this woman's album as my album of the week, and it's Pat Benatar. Now, in 1984... <laughs> There's a story there, too. Oh, excellent. Yeah, Painted, Painted Desert, Pat Benatar, 1984. Now, at the time, uh, I'd been put under house contract by MGMN in London, which represented directors like Russell Mulcahy, Brian Grant, David Mallard, who were the three key video directors of the 80s out of the UK and in America. Uh, so I was under contract to this company who would send me tracks, but for their directors when they came out to LA, but also um, I was allowed to, you know, accept freelance work from other places like Limelight. Uh, and with Limelight, they sent me a track called Painted Desert by Pat Benatar, which was going to be directed by an English guy called Chris Gabrin. Two days later, I had the same track sent to me by MGMM, who didn't know that I'd been sent it by Limelight, but they'd called it Painted Dessert. <laughs> so it's just as well that I got the Limelight track first, because if I'd had Painted Dessert first, I'd have probably looked at that title and tried to come up with something that fitted the title. <laughs> And also, I always wanted to go out to the desert. Uh, so that's why it was shot in the Mojave Desert, because I'd never been there. It was dawning on me to set videos in places I wanted to see. Ah, now that's a good way of doing it. So that's why Bonnie Tyler was at the Grand Canyon, because I'd never been there. That's why Pat Benatar was in the Mojave, because I'd never been there. That's <laughs> why we shot a Teddy Pendergrass down in Mexico, because I'd never been there. Oh, that's very clever. Sneaky, but effective. <laughs> but Pat Benatar was, um, I don't know, it's like the best people I worked with, the best stars I worked with, Elton John, Olivia Newton-John and Bonnie Tyler, shared one thing. They weren't American. And they were really nice, down to earth. Uh, they'd eat with the crew rather than, you know, by themselves in their fancy trailer or anything. And were really sociable. Um, in fact, one little secret is what Elton John called me. Uh, because he had a habit at that time, uh, which amused him immensely, of giving people he liked a pet name. So, in fact, John Lennon, he'd called Morag. Um, John Reed, his manager, he called Beryl because of Beryl Reed. That was the kind of humour he was dealing with. So with me, when we were doing this video album, he said, hmm, I've decided to call you Martha. Martha? Why Martha? You know, darling, Martha Miller, the writer. <laughs> but so the American stars themselves tended to be much more, I don't know if the word is standoffish, but a bit more remote on the sociability scales. So with Pat Benatar, she was in her trailer in the desert. And if it had been Elton John, you could have just knocked and walked in. But with her, you just knocked and waited. Oh. Subtle differences, but yeah. big differences. Yeah. Well, actually, when I said I got one more question from the 80s, actually, I lied because <laughs> I, have to, I have to ask this because there's so many references to the 80s in this. Because Alice Cooper, he's back, the man behind the mask, the song from Friday the 13th uh, yes. movie. Please tell us about that one. Well, yet again, the opportunity arose to do something that hadn't been done before. 
you know, like work with an American feature director or a first video for soap opera or, um, you know, other little firsts like that. And the first with uh, Alice Cooper was doing a video, music video for a horror film. Now, do you know the legend of the Friday the 13th movies, uncut versions? I know. I mean, we're both big fans of them, aren't we, Tom? But, but have you heard of the, you know, what you what they make isn't what you end up seeing? Because Exactly, the... yeah, yeah. I mean, Paramount, I think, have tried to get the full uncut versions out. And this, I, I'm not sure. I, I could be wrong, but I think there's the odd one or two that may be available uncut. But I know we've we've not seen hmm. legally, let's say, the, the the proper uncut version of every film. Well, what they would do, they'd always shoot extra footage they knew to be ultra gross. So that when they presented it to the MPAA, they would go for the obvious, leaving the stuff in that the director really wanted. Hmm. That was the trick. So we were invited along to see Friday the 13th at a Paramount screen in the theatre. The producer, again, of Ghostbusters, Billy Idol, etc., hadn't seen a horror film in 20 years. And this was the uncut version. All I could hear behind me was, oh, dear God, no. Oh, 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 oh God. It really was, you know, quite extreme. So anyway, um, I came up with the idea of Man Behind the Mask. What if, you know, we do set it in a theatre where there's kids watching uh, Friday the 13th film. Uh, so that's where the footage has been shot. But then in the beginning or just around the beginning, the screen suddenly tears and Alice Cooper comes out wearing the Jason mask and then continues interacting and performing with the audience there. Uh, but I don't think they were too keen on... Did he? I haven't seen it for a long time. Did he actually come out with a mask on his face? Oh, the Jason it's... mask. I I'm not can't... sure if he did because there was a kerfuffle about him wearing that. They thought it might be confusing or something. Oh, really? Yeah, but the best bit was prior to the shooting of the video, going to meet Alice Cooper, having lunch with him in some restaurant in West Hollywood, and just talking for two to three hours about horror films, which he loved and I love. Oh, that must have been so good. Oh, yeah, it was, you know, forget the video, it was just great meeting him <laughs> and chatting horror films. When I met Barbara Streisand, I didn't really care if the video didn't get made. I met her, you know. And, well, and to be sort of shut well hum, what's the word modest shy humble she called me brilliant which you know i know i shouldn't show off but if barbara streisand says something you've just suggested is brilliant you don't forget that in a hurry oh god no oh. so no there's and there's stories to be told around her house but that'll take up all night well i, th I think much like uh when we talked to stephen patalo in part one of this we may have to get you back on for another part, Keith. It's, it's, it <laughs> seems like there's more stories to be told. <laughs> well, I, I do. What, what I'd like to do eventually is write a book about all these music video experiences. Um, but that's contingent on what happens with the script option coming up in June. Yeah. Because I, you know, I thought, well, how do you structure, uh, you know, a life full of anecdotes? It could end at any time or go on forever. It has to have a structure. Um, and um, I thought, well, actually, the structure would be that script that I thought up in Hollywood while sleeping on somebody's floor. It kept me in Hollywood for five years. 
provided financial stepping stones for the next 30 years and meeting wonderful people, experiences, going to Europe, the Austrian Alps, wherever. That's really um, what the book should be structured around, is that particular script and what it um, allowed me to be involved in. Oh, yeah. I mean, again, when we talk to Stephen, I mean, he's got a couple of books coming out. I'm 100% positive that listeners will agree with me when I say, you need to write a book as well, Keith. I mean, the, the stories that you've told us are just a taste of the stuff that you've done. Well, I and, hope so. Oh, I, I for one, and I'm sure you, Tom, as well, we would be first in the queue to buy a book from Keith, oh, wouldn't yeah. we? Oh, yeah. Well, it's like this, that script is like the gift that keeps on giving. Um, when it was re-optioned last year, and I didn't want it re-optioned, but I had to because that was in the contract, um, the, you know, the option fee came in. Uh, not a great amount of money by any means. But I thought rather than fritter it away, let's do something positive. So I used the money to go on a trip to India last year for about three weeks up in the Himalayas. Oh, and nice. again, that's something I owe to that script. Yeah, yeah, of course. That's, so that's good that you, that you spent the money on that. You know, yeah. so another, so another good life experience. Oh, completely. So what I'm doing right now is... Um, an exercise in prose writing. I've written articles, but I've never written anything of any great length before. And as a precursor to writing the book about the music video experiences and everything else I was involved with in the last 30 years. Um, where am I? I fell off a cliff. <laughs> you were almost like Bonnie Tyler at the Grand Canyon then. <laughs> oh, I was. I was just pulled back in time. <laughs> if you ever get two thirds through a sentence, you think, hang on, what am I talking about? I do it all the time. <laughs> Where was I? India. Yeah. Oh, no, that's right. Uh, what I'm doing is um, writing up an account of the journey. I've no idea how long it's going to be, but it's 70 pages already, and I'm only two weeks through the three weeks. But I wanted to do it to see if it was something I could conceivably enjoy doing, because I through the experience of music videos, was taught to think and write concisely. Mm. You know, that's the whole thing about music videos is you write concisely or you think concisely because you've got three minutes to tell what might be in other circumstances a 10-minute narrative. And doing this travelogue, I'm, re I'm really enjoying writing it. And now I can see that doing that book about the music video experiences is uh, now much more feasible and a realistic proposition. So, yeah, it's like um, there's one word which I'll probably reserve for your class, but the most important word in music videos is counterpoint. Oh, okay. Always try to do the opposite of what the song is telling you, and you'll find, weirdly, that it is what the song is about in the end. <laughs> so that if for instance you get a track called it's raining again by super tramp the first thing you think of is how do i avoid showing rain all the time yeah of course but it'd be perverse not to show rain at some point so let's just show rain at the end but you but if you had somebody singing it's raining again and you saw rain falling you're just mickey mouse in the lyrics yeah but it's much more interesting if you create a parallel visual. Like, for instance, a better example would be, I didn't do it, but Lorna Branigan's self-control. Now, she's singing about 
how she loses self-control at night. What I would have suggested as a video concept is to shoot it in the daytime, because then you're creating the tension of, is she going to end up doing it again that night? Mm. So it's that's, I've always found the counterpoint works uh, remarkably well when you, can, you come up with something like that. Never do the obvious. Yeah, I guess it's too easy to just come up with the obvious, isn't it? That, that must be the tricky part, is to come up with something that isn't obvious. Yeah, it's, it's, it's boring because it's literal if you do the obvious. You're not gaining anything. You're just seeing what you're hearing. Yeah. But it's like what Russell used to do as well was um, pack so much information into his videos via edits or action that it was too much to take in the first time you saw it so that you'd have to watch it about six or seven times before you might even realize what the concept or narrative is. But then the secret to a good music video is repeatability. How many times can you watch it before you get fed up of it? Uh Well, if it's obvious, you're going to get pretty fed up of it quickly. But if you have to constantly work with it, seeing different things all the time, it's much more interesting and has a longer life. Oh, of course, yeah. Of course it is. Mm. So that's my guiding line for future music video directors. (laughs) Counterpoint. (laughs) Never do the obvious. Well, Keith, I'm sure the listeners, after listening to this, will love to find out more that you've done there'll be links on this week's podcast notes as there always is on our website is there any way that they can sort of find and follow you online as well in, well, like in... have you twitter have you facebook have you a website there oh any... they wouldn't like the twitter because that's that's um, I, i've put a joke twit tweet <laughs> what a thing up it's reduced to clear so whenever i'm in the supermarket and i see kids yogurts reduced to 15 <laughs> I'll tweet it. <laughs> it is taking the mick a bit, but, you know, it can be quite funny around those reduced to clear characters. It gets like the grapes of wrath at times. It's dangerous. So I wouldn't recommend Twitter. Um, what we can do then, Keith, if it's okay with you, is we can act as sort of like a mediator. And uh, if anybody wants to get in touch with you for any uh, for any genuine reasons, let's put it that way, they can they can contact us through the details that Tom's going to give in a moment, and we can pass them on to you if that's all right. Oh yeah, I'd allow offers of marriage to be filtered through too. <laughs> you know, not too snobby. <laughs> so I think that's a good segue then, Tom, for you to give the details of all our details. Yeah, of course. Our website is atspicturehouse.co.uk. Our email address is contact at atspicturehouse.co.uk. Alternatively, at the top of our website, there's a contact us form. Our Twitter's at atspicturehouse. Our Facebook's facebook.com forward slash atspicturehouse. And we're also on YouTube, Reddit, Pinterest, and all the links to that are at the top of our website. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I found this an absolutely fascinating look at music videos tom i'm, I'm sure oh, you yeah. have it's like oh most definitely yeah you know I, I couldn't have wished for two better guests than than stephen patalo in part one and you keith in part two is has just been incredible thank you so much for joining us it's oh been so thank good. you for the opportunity oh, it's, it's my been, pleasure it's been really good and i'm sure that you know listeners if you agree if you've enjoyed listening to, to stephen and keith please get in touch with us you know Tom's give you all the details in the way that you can do. Let us know what you thought about this uh, this two-part series of looking back at music videos. We've got other looking back at specials lined up, so we're looking forward to doing them too. Um, it just remains for me to say 
thank you, Keith, for joining us. It's been the pleasure I knew it would be from talking to you, you know, a week or two ago. I knew it would be really good. And of course it was. Of course it was. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah. And thanks for listening to this. And we will be back with another episode. Who knows what format that may be? We've got so many on the go at the the moment. (laughs) 